Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 154 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you guys are having an incredible holiday season. Last week, it was fantastic for me. I, I got finally the news that I got certified through ASAC for becoming a certified sex therapist. I've been working on this for years and I submitted my completed application back in July and I just got the email that I was approved. So I was so excited. And on top of that, I, I went to my office mailbox and I saw that I got five new books on psychology of sex and uh, from the interviewees that we're going to have on this show. And these books are fantastic. So I cannot wait to share this content with you make sure that you are subscribing to our show so you will get the notification about our future upcoming episode. So our conversation today is about consensual non-monogamous relationships. But before I tell you more about this, I also want to remind you that if you haven't downloaded our list of checklist of 101 ways to make sex more exciting, make sure you are downloading it. I personally drafted this list. It has tons of, I can guarantee that it has tons of interesting things that you haven't thought about. And it gives you some ideas on what to do to spice up your sex life. Because one of the number one challenges that many of clients in my practice have is that they're tired of having routine, boring sex. And sex in a long-term relationship doesn't need to be boring. So I hope you found the checklist helpful. So perhaps you're also wondering that why are we revisiting this conversation around consensual non-monogamy? We had, I think, three or four episodes on various forms of consensual non-monogamy. But one of the questions that I always get from people is, are they healthy? How do you know that they're healthy? Many of my colleagues are therapists and they're telling me, how do you know it's not coming from attachment wounds? So I thought, okay, perhaps they need to invite someone who's a researcher in this area because my experience of working with people who are practicing and they are in these relationships that are not monogamous are based on my clinical experiences. So our guest today is Dr. Amy Morse, PhD, is an assistant professor professor of psychology at Chapman University and a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, Indiana University. She also serves as the co-chair of the American Psychological Association's Division 44 Consensual Non-Monogamy Task Force. Prior to joining Chapman, she was the director of the Social Science Research and Evaluation Program in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. She is an interdisciplinary researcher with backgrounds in psychology and women's study, higher education, and social science evaluations. Dr. Moore's research interest lies in the intersection of gender, sexuality, interpersonal relationship, and inclusion. 
I'll leave a link to the, her full bio. She has tons of, she receives tons of awards and she has more than 40 articles on, on these areas. So if you're curious to learn more about her research, make sure you're checking out our show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Amy Morse. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Amy Morse on our show today. Dr. Morse, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Morali. I've been I looking am, forward to this. I am so excited. We, we were halfway, like five minutes into a conversation, guys. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> we had some technical issues and we're re-recording. So can you share with us what happened that you got interested in this area of research? Of course. I wish I had a story where there was this beautiful like aha moment or I just knew this is exactly what I was going to do. Instead, it just kind of happened. And sometimes this happens among researchers and clinicians. We find ourselves doing things. About 15 years ago, I was in a master's program and I was working with another student to look at how our own personality may or may not match the people that we're dating. So to the extent to which we're agreeable, do we find ourselves in relationships with other agreeable people or not? And we were putting together a proposal to do this online research study, and we were really interested in the experiences of people in same-sex or same-gender relationships. But at the time, our institution did not want us to ask about sexual orientation. And so to get around that, at at the time, they thought that maybe this was sensitive data or it could out people. And to get around that, we asked people, describe your relationship to us. And we thought that people would just tell us, oh, kind of who they're dating. And that would be a proxy to understanding their sexual orientation. So when we were conducting the study and we're reading the ways in which people are describing their relationships, we start to pick up like, oh my gosh, people are describing that they have multiple partners and they're in open relationships and they're practicing polyamory. And that was one of the first times I'd even heard the relationship type of polyamory. That was a new word at the time. And so I got really interested in, oh, here's a bunch of queer people that I'm trying to study and understand more about their intimate lives. And it seems like many of whom are identifying in some sort of open relationship. And I was applying to PhD programs at the time. And I was applying to the University of Michigan. And I was writing Terry Connolly. So I knew I wanted to study romantic relationships and gender and sexuality. And we're emailing back and forth about the possibility of me applying to the program. And I tell her, hey, I'm you know, looking at the study and here's some preliminary findings. And it turns out that over the last year, she had conducted a very similar study and it wasn't on her website. I had no idea that she was also doing this. And so it was just this really wonderful coincidence. And of course, she accepted me. And then I went to the University of Michigan and... Myself, a Terry Connolly, who's now a tenured professor there, and several other of us in the her research lab just really took off with this area of research. There is very little academic work, especially in the field of psychology, around consensually non-monogamous relationships. So it was a really fun time period. This was about a decade ago when any question that we kind of had about consensual non-monogamy, we could empirically test. There weren't, there weren't other studies to kind of rely on. And it was a really creative and fun period. And now I still 
most of my research actually still looks at consensually non-monogamous relationships to this day. What a wonderful story and what a wonderful resource that you guys, the lab that you had and yourself now are providing to public because you're right that this is not a new concept. Maybe people are hearing more about it right now openly because of like a stigma is slightly less. I wouldn't say that there's no stigma right now, but even my clients that I work with, some of them, they sharing with me that they grew up in a household, that they were like their parents were in a polyamorous relationship. They had kind of like a, they were on a consensual non-monogamous relationship and the kids that they have that now they're adults doing well. And which is very contradictory to the belief that at least general public have around there's just people who are, have issues with commitment and their children will suffer and all of those things that I know that your research helps us to have a more accurate, depiction of uh, what's going on with this population. So tell us, let's start with talking about what is consensual non-monogamy? Sure. So I think of consensual non-monogamy as an umbrella term. So it describes a lot of different relationships where all of the people involved are giving explicit consent to engage in intimate, romantic, and or sexual relationships with multiple people. I think sometimes people might confuse consensual non-monogamy with cheating, but it's not. These are relationships with multiple people among consenting adults. Everyone's aware of this. And there's some common forms of consensual non-monogamy, including polyamory, open relationships, swinging relationships, and then people who identify as monogamish. That's a term that is coined by Dan Savage. Mm And so that's the idea that they're monogamous for the most part, but maybe once in a while they'll engage in a threesome or do something that is consensually non-monogamous, but still call themselves monogamous. And that's fine. There's room for that. That's a part of consensual non-monogamy too. So tell us some of the benefits that you found in your research that people who are practicing this, this type of relationship are experiencing. Sure. And so many of the benefits that we found when we're asking people, you know, what are the benefits of your current relationship? I did that in one study and I asked over 150 people currently engaged in a monogamous relationship, what are the benefits of monogamy? And then in a a different study, I asked over 150 people in consensually non-monogamous relationships, what are the benefits of your relationship? And my colleagues and I found that most of the benefits that people mentioned were similar across the two types of relationships. So both people in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships were saying that their relationships gave them family benefits, trust, love, communication, commitment, sexual benefits. And this makes sense because these are the fundamentals of relationship quality and belonging, of having interpersonal relationships. But what we found with this research project was interesting that there were three unique benefits that emerged for people in consensually non-monogamous relationships that were not mentioned by people in monogamous relationships. And so those three benefits, one was diversified needs fulfillment. So Mm -hmm. people were typing out what they thought this benefit was. And then my research assistants and I go through and we look for themes like thematic codes of what people are saying. And one of the most common unique benefits mentioned by 42% of people engaged in consensually non-monogamous relationships was diversified need fulfillment. And this is the idea that there are more people to meet one's needs or there are 
having some of their own needs met to a greater extent. So things like more satisfaction because of multiple people meeting many needs. That was one participant quote or another quote was not expecting one partner to be everything to me. Another popular unique benefit was this idea of activity variety and it was non-sexual. So this was mentioned by 40% of people and it had nothing to do with sex. Instead, it was more focused on you know, consensual non-monogamy gives me more opportunities to have like lots of activities and fun. And there's always something fun to do with partners like date nights and movies. And the third unique benefit was this idea of personal growth and development. And this was mentioned by about a third of people in consensually non-monogamous relationships. And this was related to having autonomy and introspection. And for some, the ability to explore connections with same gender or queer partners. So people were saying things like, you know, consensual non-monogamy has taught me so much about myself. What a interesting findings. And it kind of is congruent with my experience. The first one that you talked about, diversified need fulfillment, I think is so important because I believe that at least my experience with myself and my clients and my friends are that people are kind of like get set up for this wrong expectation when they when they start a relationship and it's a monogamous relationship, because the expectation that we have is that there's gonna be one person that will be providing and meeting all of our needs, all of yes. our friendship needs, sexual needs, hobby, excitement, mm-hmm. everything that I know Esther Paul talks about used to be provided by entire village. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. now we're kind of like putting all of this on, on the significant other who, who has, uh, he or she has it's his own or her own life. And how realistic is that? Right. And it's such a tall order to fill, Mm -hmm. to be someone, to be the best parent, to be the passionate lover, to be the therapist, to be the best friend of someone. I was also going to mention Esther Perel. She gives a fantastic TED talk about this. I love that one. Yes. 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 Um, I have my students watch it. I've probably, you know, watched it at least 50 times over. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think she does just such a good job of describing, you know, we're asking so much of people, why are we doing this when we're not asking that, let's say about a best friend. In society and in our science, we we seem to be fine with the idea that platonic love or familial love is endless. Like no one raises an eyebrow if someone says, I have five best friends. People are like, great, I'm happy for you. (laughs) But if, you know, no one is like, no, that's not possible. You can only have love for one best friend or one parent. But when it comes to romantic love, we tend to view that as limited. And if someone longs or lusts for someone else, then people start to view that person as having something wrong with them or something must be wrong with their relationship. Mm. And I just find that contradictory message about love in the context of, you know, platonic love and romantic love really interesting because I I don't understand quite why love would be different across these two situations, but we've really set it up differently in our society. Absolutely. And something else about what Esther Perel was talking about it, and I thought it was fantastic that talks about this element of novelty and the importance of it in the relationship. Because I know, at least, again, what I learned before kind of getting familiar with that concept was that when you are in a relationship, the deeper the emotional intimacy, the better the sex gets. I mean, emotional intimacy is important, but doesn't necessarily mean like if you're someone's best friend, 
you will be the best lover or the passion is alive. And it's my experience that at times, even when people are getting closer and when they're married for years, the sex fades. And I think that's, that's something that people get surprised because they feel like this is a relationship that they are in a monogamous relationship. The partner needs to be able to provide all of these things that would, I think, like realistically require many, many people to be part of it. Right, right. And that's a really common finding in the romantic relationship literature, that sexual satisfaction, it's really high within the first couple of years of dating someone or marriage, whichever, just being in a committed relationship with someone. And then it sharply decreases over the lifespans. And so, you know, potentially for people who are open to the idea of consensual non-monogamy, because I would never recommend consensual non-monogamy to everyone. I don't Mm. think that it's a solution. I'm also not a clinician like you, so I don't give recommendations. Um, (laughs) I try to, you know, I don't work with clients in that capacity, but potentially for people who are open to that idea, that could be a way to maybe revive sexual satisfaction or explore opportunities with other people to combat that really sharp decline of sexual satisfaction over the life course. And I think the second point you made with the activity variety also is very important. One of my friends, she, she's very athletic. And one of the challenges she has uh, is to find a man that she identifies heterosexual, someone who who is the same level of athletic ability that she has. And it's just hard for her because like she she's going to these relationships. She find it very like the person is wonderful and great, but that's the missing piece for her. And I love doing sports and what she was talking to me about it, like, oh, how did you navigate it? Because my husband likes doing sports, but it's not that's not his thing. And I talked about, okay, I, I accept that he's not doing sport. He doesn't like doing running, biking, all of those things. And I do it with my friend and it works out fine. So I think part of it is just like if when people are in the consensual non-monogamous relationship, as you mentioned, it's just not even the benefits is not solely around sexual satisfaction and sexual fulfillment. It gives people to uh, the opportunity to expand their tribe. Right. Absolutely. And I think no matter if people practice consensual non-monogamy or monogamy, like we all have similar stories like that. Like someone we dated or our spouse just really hates something or dislikes something that we really like. So I'm happy you brought it back to this kind of non-sexual component. So I know one of the study that you looked into the quality of attachment in this population. And I feel one of the misunderstandings that I specifically hear from clinician is that when you have a non-monogamous relationship, consensual, even consensual one, that impacts the quality of attachment. What did you find in that study? Yeah. And so, great question. I've done a couple of studies now on attachment because it's a, the most popular theoretical framework for how we approach or avoid romantic relationships. I know it's really popular to guide people throughout the therapeutic alliance and to understand their relationships. And if you take a close look at attachment theory, it kind of implicitly assumes that monogamy is superior. So I think that a lot of professionally trained people, you know, hold this idea because when you're reading attachment theory, that's, that's basically what it's telling us. For instance, according to attachment theory, it makes it seem like sexual exclusivity is the hallmark of a secure and healthy relationship. 
But, you know, is sexual exclusivity really necessary to be securely attached? And in a 2015 paper of mine, my colleagues and I were the first to ever even look at this idea. And so we asked people who had never been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship to tell us about their attachment style, their attitudes toward consensual non-monogamy. And so we asked them things like, you know, the extent to which monogamy is very important to them. And then we also asked them there to tell us about their willingness to engage in consensual non-monogamy. So their willingness to go to a swinger party or to engage in a polyamorous relationship. And we found in this study, again, these are people who have never engaged in consensual non-monogamy, that to the extent to which they were expressed avoidant attachment, so not wanting to be interpersonally close or to have distance from a partner, to the extent that they were high on avoidance, they were really interested in consensual non-monogamy. They had high desire and they had high positive attitudes about it. And so that is an insecure attachment. And what we did in a second study was, okay, well, then how does attachment relate to people who are actually in consensually non-monogamous relationships? And what happens when we compare them to people in monogamous relationships? And we found the exact opposite finding. We found that people who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships have substantially lower attachment avoidance than people in monogamous relationships. So that tells us that, you know, people are actually securely attached, or that gives us some evidence that people are securely attached in consensually non-monogamous relationships. I had a question about that. Mm-hmm. I know that in some relationships, there's a primary partner and secondary partner. I know that that's not how many people are defining it, but that's a subcategory of people. Did you notice any difference in the quality of attachment with the primary partner versus the secondary partner? Great question. So I haven't done, well, I guess I'm, I'm working on a study that sort of relates to that now, but a colleague of mine, Rhonda Bowles, Balzarini, who's at York University, she recently published a study that looked at exactly kind of differences between primary partners and secondary partners. And in some respects, secondary partners scored higher or people viewed their secondary partners as higher on some different types of relationship quality. So higher sexual satisfaction with the secondary partner compared to the primary partner. But in terms of attachment, I think that that's just not quite clear yet. If someone is higher or lower based on whether it's a primary or secondary relationship, what I did find in a recent study, I looked at more than 300 people engaged in polyamorous relationships. So these are people who are all in sexual and romantic relationships with at least two partners. And I compared, I looked at their avoidance and anxiety scores. So the extent to which they were avoidant and anxious with their primary partner, secondary partner, or just a partner one or two. Like you said, not everyone practices in a hierarchy of relationships. And I looked at their attachment scores and then I compare them to established national standards. So, you know, of a of a study of more than 100,000 people who have taken attachment scores. 
And so I was able to compare people who practice polyamory, their attachment scores to this kind of national standard. And I found that people engaged in polyamorous relationships scored substantially lower on avoidance and anxiety compared to established norms. And for both their primary, secondary, or partner one or partner two. Fascinating. And it's kind of opposite of what people usually think. They think it's just a form of avoidance when people are seeking kind of a more kind of non-monogamous relationships. Right, right. And we're, and we're finding that no, actually, people are very securely attached. These were really low scores of avoidance and anxiety, which I think for many relationship scientists, clinicians, the general public seems like a counterintuitive finding. But when you think about consensually non-monogamous relationships, these types of relationships require a lot of communication and checking in with people and expressing wants and needs and desires, which could likely, you know, form secure attachments in a robust way. Absolutely. And and I even see it in my among my colleagues that are that are seeing couples and they do couples therapy. And when people are coming to them when they are in part of the consensual non-monogamous relationship or other issues, they have this kind of underlying belief at times, unfortunately, that this is part of the problem and this right. is what's going on. So they, they kind of think they need to correct that. Although I hear that it works for a couple, it, it, it doesn't coming from this wound, woundedness and rupture and attachment. So it's great that you're doing this work to with the research to educate clinicians about it can be a healthy way of uh, relationship structure. Right. So tell us about, so it seems like uh, couples are experiencing or in, individuals are experiencing some stigma depending on where they are. Sometimes people come to me, I'm a sex therapist, for other mental health issues when they are in these relationships because they don't want, you know, to, like I wouldn't necessarily judge them. They're so scared of judgment and like they are kind of like they're not out about it with their friends and family, or, like parent group that they have. So they are experiencing some what we, we describe as clinicians as a minority stress. So how do you recommend people to cope with this minority stress? Oh, wow. That is, that's kind of a hard to answer question because I think the stigma that people are experiencing is really real and warranted. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything at the federal level or at the state level that can protect people in consensually non-monogamous relationships from discrimination. Over the years, I've noticed an uptick in court cases, particularly around child custody. Mm -hmm. So imagine people in a polyamorous relationship, they're co-parenting, a family member finds out that they're doing this and does not agree. That family member might be able to get custody of the kids. So that could be like a grandparent or, you know, a parent, but someone not in the relationship, just a family member. People could be fired from their jobs for engaging in consensual non-monogamy. They could be denied housing. Imagine a housing application and it's a monogamous couple compared to someone who's maybe in a triad and, you know, getting approved for housing. So I think the stigma and the fear that people are experiencing is, is warranted. I think that it's really real. And so I would recommend people, and this is kind of unfortunate because I want to live in a world where people can express their sexuality without a fear of a repercussion. You know, it should be a liberty to be able to express one's sexuality. 
in the way that they want to. And in particularly, this is among consenting adults, but I would, around disclosure, I would probably recommend people to be thoughtful about who they disclose to and under what circumstances. In terms of coping with minority stress, I I would definitely recommend people to seek uh, mental professional help and to work with kind of different techniques in order to process stigma, to understand that a lot of it is coming from a societal stigma that can be internalized. And it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong with the person, that they want to have sex with multiple people, or they desire love and intimacy from multiple people. So working with a trained professional through that. And something that I would love to mention is I co-chair a task force that's a part of the American Psychological Association Division 44, a consensual non-monogamy task force with my dear friend and longtime collaborator. He's Schechinger. He's a licensed clinician at Berkeley. I'm a basic researcher. And we actually recently had both Psychology Today, which is one of the biggest therapist locators, as well as the American Psychologist Locator to include searchable criteria for consensual non-monogamy. So now if someone is seeking a therapist who has expertise or who is affirming to consensual non-monogamy, they can use these tools to find someone to locate that therapist where, you know, that didn't exist uh, a couple months ago. So I'm really excited for that. And that can also help people better find and match with trained mental health professionals. That is so wonderful. I was kind of uh, surprised that I I saw in the bio that you are the chair of co-chair of the task force for APA for this. My assumption as a psychologist that's part of APA thought it was like more conservative. So I'm I'm so excited and happy that they have this task force. And also kind of now people can search based on that because I feel if you were working this population, you had to go out of your way to make it known. This window, right. it's helpful if, if you can kind of check the check mark, they click the check mark, and then people know that you are affirming or that's something that's your specialty. And I think that also helps people to, with the clinician, to see that that also is something that's acceptable. It's not coming from the place of pathology. It's more of a kind of relationship structure that people choose to have. Right, absolutely. Yeah, with the task force, we've really, we're a group now of over 85 people who are part of the task force. And we have, you know, really been able to take the research and apply it in different ways to destigmatize consensual non monogamy, to promote psychological education and awareness, and to, you know, really make social progress around this idea that, you know, consensual non-monogamy, it's not not pathological or it's not necessarily, you know, problematic for people. Do you have any any recommendation, anything that you want to tell us to your listeners who are clinicians? I just did this recent survey. It seems like 60% of my listeners are general public and 40% are therapists and clinicians. So what do you have? Do you have any recommendation for that? Oh, I do. So right now, with my other co-chair and one of my grad students, we're working on actually a fact sheet that is recommendations for clinicians. And so we're putting it together. And it's just an idea of a lot of people want information about how to be 
you know, an inclusive practitioner. And, you know, right now there's dozens and dozens of studies. So we try to distill that into this fact sheet. So some of the things that we are recommending are, you know, for people to pursue different educational opportunities around consensual non-monogamy. One of the biggest findings in a study of more than 249 people who practice consensual non-monogamy, who were also seeing a therapist, endorsed by more than one out of three of them, they said that their therapist was really helpful if their therapist was knowledgeable about consensual non-monogamy. So that's a really, you know, kind of easy way to be an inclusive practitioner is to seek out educational opportunities. I know that in the near future, Heath and I are going to do an online continuing education webinar. So that's an option. I know some other clinicians are doing those as well. So there's, in case people can't get to somewhere in person, we're trying to translate these things into online. Um, Actually, I was just asked by the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University to put together an online module for clinicians um, as part of, I know, I'm so excited. I'm really, truly excited for that. So that's one way in which clinicians can start to get trained because for the most part, many of your listeners and many clinicians in general haven't had training in this. There isn't a lot of academic research about it. It hasn't made it into textbooks per se. And so this is one opportunity that we're trying to make available to people who want this additional training to have access to it. Another recommendation that I would give people is to use inclusive forms and language on their intake forms. So one of the most common harmful practices that people in consensually non-monogamous relationships viewed that their therapist did was mislabeling them. So therapists automatically assume that they were monogamous, just like people automatically assume people are straight or things like this. We make assumptions. And so one way to avoid that is on an intake form, just ask, what's your relationship style like? Or what's your relationship structure? And give people give people some options. I'm single, casually dating, I'm in a monogamous relationship, and I'm in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. And then ask people how they refer to their different partners. Is it partner, spouse, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend? Because then you can avoid making those mistakes or assumptions by just asking people right away about their relationship. These are great suggestions. And I'm very excited about continuing education piece. And also that can be very affirming to clients that are coming in to see that on your form you have, you don't necessarily have married, single, divorce, kind of like all those very traditional check marks versus kind of like you're given the opportunity to to feel seen with being able to kind of write down or mark the thing that resonate with them. And that can resolve the some of the awkwardness and the errors that people make in the when they, they meet their clients. Yeah, absolutely. I really like how you phrase that as, you know, being made visible and being made seen. I think that's definitely a part of it by asking it on an intake form. Do you have more suggestions for us? Oh, I was just going to say, I wanted to mention one harmful practice that was really common, uh, surprisingly common. About one out of 10 therapists were seen as suggesting to their clients to renounce their relationship, to you know, say something like, the, the cause of your problem is polyamory. You should really go back to being monogamous. <laughs> I know, I know. And that was really, really alarming to Heath and I. 
both from a researcher and clinical standpoint, that it was as common as one of 10. So, you know, the take home for that is to really, I would recommend everyone, clinicians or not, to explore their own biases and to, you know, refrain from saying those things to other people. Thank you so much for sharing these things with us. I think, again, part of it, part of these kind of best practices that you shared with us are so basic that people can implement it, implement it right away. So it's wonderful to have some guideline around that. So I would imagine some of our listeners and also clinicians want to kind of read your studies. They want to know more about your lab. What would be the best way of contacting you? Oh, sure thing. So for the... American Psychological Association Division 44 Consensual Non-Monogamy Task Force. We have a website, which is div44cnm.org. And on that, we post a lot of educational materials. So part of our work with the task force is to take the research and put them into brochure forms or fact sheet forms. And so that is a really great resource to understand what we're doing at the task force and to get these downloadable resources. For people who are interested in my academic research, they can look me up on Google Scholar just by my name, Amy C. Morse, and that will take them to all of the different academic peer-reviewed journals that I've authored. I'm currently working on my own personal website. One day that will be up. And, um, but for now, if anyone would like a copy, uh, sometimes the research that I do is behind a paywall, but if anyone would like a copy, um, they can just email me directly and I'll be happy to share a copy of my research with them. And those are the, definitely the two ways to get in touch with me and some of the work that I'm doing. Excellent. I personally going to check out the task force as well. Uh, I already checked out the research articles that you mm-hmm. have, and I think they are very informative. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a helpful and informative conversation. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was truly a delight. Have a great day. Thank you. I hope you find my conversation with Dr. Amy helpful. It was certainly wonderful to hear from someone that works with these couples and do research with them to hear if kind of practicing this alternative relationship lifestyle is coming from this place of unhealthy attachment or it is working for people and how is it that's working. Anyhow, if you like this show, please give us an honest review on iTunes. It really helps us to rank higher in iTunes and it helps us to reach a broader audience. And I am grateful for every single one of you guys who are tuning into this show and I cannot wait to talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.